welcome everyone to another edition of Government by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So, like I promised last time, uh, we're going to take a break from Alexis de Tocqueville's work, Democracy in America, and I want to go to another influential work uh, in American history, and that is the work of John Locke. Uh, many have probably learned about John Locke in school. He has written a lot, a lot of important documents, and he was very influential to our founding fathers. Now, he wasn't as influential, I think, as people make him out to be, but I do want to look at uh, one of his main writings, which is called Two Treatises on Government. But before I do that, I want to cover a passage of the day. Now, this passage is related because we're going to talk about the difference between covenants and contracts, okay? Because this is going to be key in understanding John Locke's perspective on government. So with that, let's begin. I have a couple passages. I really just want to focus on the concept of covenant. So I'm just going to give uh, the first passage is Isaiah chapter 24, verses 1 through 6. And it says this, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Okay, so that's Isaiah 24. Now, Genesis 9, another example of the language of covenant. I want to read just very briefly the section between God and Noah and their covenant. Verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, then never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So we see here in both of those passages the concept of covenant. Now in the Isaiah passage, we see this is judgment upon the whole earth, not just the people of Israel. And it's because what God says is they, the people, have broken the everlasting covenant. So there is an everlasting covenant. And the book of Hosea refers to this as the covenant like Adam had. Okay, so like Adam, they broke the covenant. So it's this uh, violation of the covenant relationship between God and mankind, where humans are supposed to be uh, stewards under God over the earth. And now in Genesis chapter 9, we see after the flood, after uh, Adam had broken the covenant and things had gotten particularly bad, God judged the world, destroyed it, and then reestablished a variation of the 
covenant with Adam, this time with Noah, a few changes had been made. But the point is that this covenant is not only with Noah and his sons, just the people who are there, but it's for all future generations. And this is just two very brief examples of covenant in Scripture. But the whole point of covenant is that two parties can covenant together, and those who come afterward are bound to the covenant even though they weren't there, okay? So that doesn't seem to fit well with our very individualistic mindset, and I think this is the fundamental difference between what John Locke has to say about government and what we would call social contract theory and the concept of covenants. So you have covenants, you have contracts, and then you have consent. And John Locke, in his writing, is going to talk about this. Now, that's all I really wanted to say as far as um, those passages. But in general, a covenant is a promise between two or more parties. It's usually based on an already existing relationship. It's associated with some kind of sign or seal. And it is meant to be in perpetuity, basically forever, until both parties agree to change the terms of the covenant or someone violates the covenant. And then the person who didn't violate the covenant has grounds against the person who violated it and can establish a change or an update to the covenant. But this is different than a contract. So a contract is temporary in nature. It does not presume a relationship, an already existing relationship, and it is not meant to be in perpetuity, okay? So when you go to uh, the store and you purchase something, you are entering into a contract because you are buying something and the seller is basically saying this product is what you want it to be. You buy five pounds of flour that's what you pull off the shelf. So when you give money to the seller, in return, the seller gives you five pounds of flour. And if that wasn't flour, or if it was four pounds, or if you didn't pay the full price, a contract has been violated. But there's no covenant there. There's no long-term relationship there. But when it comes to covenants, it's a little different. So in a marriage covenant, for example... That is not a contract. You don't just enter into marriage and that if the other side doesn't fulfill their end of the bargain, then the contract is void and this can be uh, completely discarded. Um, That's not the case. A covenant is meant to be in perpetuity and it's based on an already existing relationship with promises given by both sides and curses received upon those who violate it. Okay, so now with that in mind, let us now... Take a look at what John Locke had to say in his writing on two treatises of government. Now, John Locke was basically what we would say an Enlightenment philosopher, uh, lived in the second half of the 1600s, so that's the 17th century. So the United States had not existed yet. There were colonies, but Locke died before the Declaration of Independence. Okay, but he, he was influential. I would say not the most influential, but he was influential in our founding as a country. Now, in this book, or these treatises, if you will, he is first 
responding to uh, an opponent, a philosophical opponent. Now, it's not like they're sworn enemies, but he's responding to a man called Sir Robert Filmer. Now, we're not going to be able to get through the entire treatise here because it's it's decently long, but I want to start today and continue uh, next time uh, to get through this document and to highlight some of the key arguments. But in his response to Sir Filmer, Sir Robert Filmer, Sir Robert is arguing in his, in his own work for what's called the divine right of kings. So previously, Sir Robert said that all government is absolute monarchy and that no one is born free. Now, he makes this argument off of the history of Adam. Adam and Eve, Adam is the first essentially king over the world. And so therefore, since monarchy or absolute monarchy was kind of the founding uh, system of government, that's the way things are supposed to be from now on. And so, you know, Adam had absolute authority and therefore kings today have absolute authority over their subjects. And essentially from Sir Robert's perspective, a perfect kingdom is a place where the king rules absolutely. There, He is the law, essentially. So that is what Sir Robert was arguing for. Now, John Locke was countering that in the first treatise on government, he basically is just arguing against Sir Robert. And he's um, pointing out that Adam had been given dominion by God, so he was under God's authority, and he did not have absolute authority over his children, okay? Um, And in fact, John Locke, despite what people think, he was not an atheist. Uh, In fact, he says, quote, I have always believed in the creation of Adam. End quote. So, so John Locke uh, grew up in a Christian household, and even though I think that he kind of deviates a little bit from the Reformed perspective on philosophy and theology and government, uh, it seems like he does affirm Scripture because in his response against Sir Robert, he quotes the Bible extensively, and he does say explicitly he believes in the creation of Adam. Uh, and it seems like he believes in God, and I'll get to that uh, later on in his discussion of law, but he's definitely not a secular man. He's not an atheist. Okay, but he argues that uh, fathers don't have absolute power over their children, so they can't just kill them. All right, so right there is an argument against Sir Robert saying that uh, kings have absolute authority. But then he makes a very clever argument, John Locke does, by saying that, well, Uh, Even if Adam had been given this kind of absolute power, we don't know who the rightful heir to the throne is. And he goes through history and and takes a look at how, well, you had Cain and Abel, okay? Then you had, you know, as, as the generations progressed, you have infighting between the various cousins and brothers, and throughout all the history of the empires of the world, including the English, uh, in the English nation, um, there was always a, a, a changing of which family was the royal family and who ruled uh, the kingdom. And so it would be actually impossible to trace it back and figure out exactly who by bloodline is the rightful heir that should be the absolute monarch. Now, 
I would argue, John Locke does not make this argument, but I would argue that Jesus Christ is the rightful heir to the world. He is the new Adam. And in fact, the Gospels trace his lineage back to Adam. So that being said, Jesus is the absolute monarch, the rightful heir, if you will, of the world. But that's not the argument that uh, John Locke is trying to make. Now, after he kind of refutes Sir Robert in his first treatise, he goes to the second treatise of government, which is really just from, from a very, like a starting from scratch perspective, what would government look like? What should civil government look like? And I'm not going to read like the entire thing. I'm going to pull out some of the quotes. But essentially, he starts off saying that political power is the right to make laws with penalties and to serve the public good. So really to preserve property and to defend the commonwealth all for the public good. But it basically comes down to making laws with penalties. Who has the power to coerce others or to use force against others? Now, Locke would say that humans started out in what he would call a state of nature. Here's what he says about that. He says it is, quote, a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they think fit within the bounds of the law of nature without asking leave or depending upon the will of any other man, end quote. So essentially, a state of nature is one where everyone is basically obeying the laws of nature and they're free to do whatever they want within those boundaries, within those boundaries, and they don't have to ask permission from anyone. So in some sense, it's everyone is a law to themselves, but John Locke wouldn't say that. He would say, you're not really a law to yourself. You are under the law of nature. And he's going to later on talk about the law of nature and the law of God being kind of equivalent, but that's the state of nature where basically you're free to do whatever you're supposed to do and not have to talk to anybody and ask for permission. That's basically the state of nature. And he makes it very clear this is not a state of license where essentially you can do whatever you want. He even says that. He says, quote, but though this be a state of liberty, Yet it is not a state of license. Though man in that state have an uncontrollable liberty to dispose of his person or possessions, yet he has not liberty to destroy himself. Okay, so he can't kill himself. All right, he doesn't have the freedom to do that. Okay, so he's not talking about doing whatever you want. All right, and in this state of nature, where the law of nature exists over all of mankind, Nobody should be hurting anybody else, okay? Everyone should be living by reason and common natural law. Everyone has the same rights. That includes the power to wield the sword, okay? And Locke makes a rhetorical question. He says, in this state, why does one man have the right to punish somebody else for doing something, okay? No one has natural authority or power over another person. So he has this, he starts off with this idea with this kind of utopian world where everyone is just floating around and just living in the wilderness, completely independent from each other, completely on their own, of course, under God's law. And then from there, this uh, this group of individuals forms 
a commonwealth. And basically, he goes on to argue that for the purpose of protecting your property, of safeguarding your property and your 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 body, your person, people form groups. They form what's called a body politic or a commonwealth. And so essentially, they give, they delegate some of their own authority, their own sword-wielding authority to a political body, a king or a legislature or something like that, right? And But this is all by consent. It is completely by consent. And he then goes on to say that um, if a person were to violate the state of nature, so basically uh, coerce somebody without consent to wield the sword against someone, basically become like a robber or a bandit or something like that. If a person were to do that, they would enter a state of war with the other person. So you got two people, state of nature, independent. One person decides to take advantage of the other one. And as soon as anything is done that's not by consent, it's a state of war against that person, okay? Uh, They're essentially going to war, even if they don't actually kill the person. They're just trying to, to coerce them. Uh, Locke goes on to say that the natural state of a man is to be free from any power on earth and not to be under the will or legislative authority of any man, okay, but to have only the law of nature for his rule. So essentially, almost like everyone's his own Adam, essentially. Everyone has a direct, um, is, is under the direct authority of God, but nobody else. That's the state of nature, okay? And then he says that, quote, the liberty of man in society is to be under no other legislative power but that established by consent in the commonwealth. All right, so it has to be by consent. All right, well, that sounds good, but then the question comes up, and this is what Locke actually will then address in his in his writing, the issue of parents and children. And I do think that this is where Locke is the weakest in his arguments. Um trying to figure out this issue of family government, all right? Now, he admits in his own book that children are not born in this state of nature. They don't have it, okay? They can't. They physically, mentally cannot uh, live under the state of nature. So, okay, well, then parents are under obligation. Now, where does this obligation come from? Uh, Locke says it comes from the law of nature. So under the law of nature, parents are obligated to provide for their children so that the children can one day individually become under the law of nature. All right? Uh, And so essentially, God gave children to the care of parents for the good of the children. Now, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But Locke would make it clear that the point is to get children to a place where they can live as if under a state of nature, a state of liberty. And Locke reiterates that, quote, freedom is not a liberty for every man to do what he wants, but a liberty to use his person, actions, property, within the allowance of the laws of nature, end quote. So again, he's not saying do whatever you want. So a parent is supposed to teach the children what it means to be free. Interestingly, Locke then goes on to say that children in return, by the law of nature, should honor their parents, even after they are independent, even after they are 
free. And he even says this. He says, quote, This freedom exempts not a son from that honor which he ought by the law of God and nature to pay his parents. Okay? So Locke is now, and he oftentimes does this, he pairs uh, law of nature and law of God together. Now, I would think it seems like he differentiates them, that they're not the same, but they're very much related, or at least they wouldn't contradict, is what he seems to indicate. So you have the law of God and the law of nature basically tells children to honor their parents because they're, the parents raise the children to be in a state of freedom, in a state of nature. So then he goes on to make a very interesting argument that once a child is grown, the child has the authority and the freedom to choose wherever he wants to live. Now, of course, we know that this is not really true. But really, Locke is trying to answer the, um, the challenge. Because the challenge is this. If government is only ever by the consent of the people, well, then what happens when a child is raised in, let's say, Pennsylvania or England, grows up, does the child have a choice? Did the child consent to living under the laws of England? or the laws of America, or laws of Pennsylvania. And Locke would say, well, when the child received the inheritance, he automatically agreed by doing that. By receiving it, he agreed to follow the rules. And in that sense, he consents. Or when the child is of age and has grown up and doesn't leave, doesn't leave the place, uh, go, to, go to another country like France, or Russia, or some other place, if the child stays as an adult, by staying, he has consented. That's his consent, to be under the laws of the nation and of the government. Now, it seems a little strange, because, again, you know, a lot of children just don't have the money when they become 18 to just leave and go settle in a different country, and uh, especially if they're required to take care of their parents and honor their parents, well, now they're not really that free to do whatever they want. So I don't think Locke does a very good job of answering that question, but, well, it's still a, an attempt to answer it. And in fact, he says this. He says, if they will enjoy the inheritance of their ancestors, they must take it on the same terms their ancestors had it and submit to all the conditions annexed to such a possession. But the question there is why? Why do they have to do that? You know, because once consent is given by the previous generation, shouldn't it be required in every successive generation? Why should we assume that the consent continues in perpetuity unless someone uh, says anything bad about it? Because here is what ends up happening. Different kinds of consent. So what Locke would say is when everyone was in a state of nature... Everyone kind of just got together and by positive consent, by multiple people deciding to make a government, they positively consented to form a body politic, to give and delegate some of their authority to this group and to submit to that group's rules. Okay, that sounds great. But here's the problem. The future generations don't get to do that. And this, this, this is true. They don't get to decide whether to make a uh, positive uh, consent to uh, be under that government. No, no, no. In that sense, their consent is really more passive uh, simply by being there 
and staying there, they've consented. But that seems like a different type of consent. It's one thing to um, require someone to affirm verbally, yes, I agree. I sign the document. I am part of this organization until I die. Okay, so, you know, you sign right here. But then it's another thing to say, well, you consent unless you opt out. Now you have to sign a document saying that you're leaving, uh, but you're automatically enrolled unless you purposely, actively say that you're out. And even then, you have to pay money to get out. So it's a little different than having to get in. And the problem is, is that Locke does not deal with that difference of consent because consent is a very broad term and it's not easy to define. And I think we're seeing that honestly in the realm of um, uh, sexual behavior in our culture. You know, just everything's about consent. But then the question is, well, what does consent look like? Do, do two people have to sign a written document in order to, you know, sleep together and then they have consented? Well, does that document last for five minutes or can the person opt out after 30 minutes when things aren't going the way that they wanted or it's not as enjoyable as they thought it would be? And then, okay, now the contract is void and if you had any kind of drink like alcohol, even just a sip, the consent is over and you can't consent? Um, what about passive consent? If you just don't say no and you don't verbalize anything but you keep doing things, is that consent? Or if you do you have to say verbally yes at every step of the way for it to be consent? And that is the problem with a system of government or a system of marriage slash sexual behavior that is grounded only upon consent and not upon the concept of covenant. And so I want to stop there today because I want to get into the rest of this particular treatise from John Locke where he does talk more about consent and the concept of majority vote, which I think is also problematic. Um, Again, why? What, where's the written rule that says majority is allowed to speak on behalf of the minority? Where is that written? That seems very much assumed um, there. So anyways, uh, there's a lot to it, and I think that's where John Locke is going to go wrong in his understanding of, of government. So anyways, uh, so that's part one. I'm not sure, maybe maybe of two or maybe of three regarding John Locke and the concept of government. But again, I hope that you would find this to be useful. And I would encourage you, you know, if you have time, read through his treatises. Uh, and if anyone tells you that John Locke is just a secular atheist, you'd be quite surprised at how much he quotes scripture, particularly in his refutation of Sir Robert. So anyways, um, if you have any questions or comments or other topics you would like me to address, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, look for Governed by God and message me there. Uh, and of course, please share this show with a friend. And if you are interested in supporting this show, you can go to patreon.com, look for Governed by God and sign up to be a patron. Would greatly appreciate it as it keeps the lights on and allows this podcast to go out to more folks. So thank you for tuning in, and until next time, take care and God bless.